Hello and welcome to the AVSJ podcast. I'm back with my buddy Aaron. How are you doing today, Aaron? Hello. I am good, thank you, Jules. How are you? Uh, hay feverish, but we're 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 working through it. Feverish. Exactly. Hay feverish. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'm glad we're working through it. Yeah, that's good. What are we talking about today? Uh, today we are starting a new kind of series. I mean, this is not going to be regular series, but like something that we'll kind of drop into every now and again. Yeah, so like Jules said, it's kind of a new series where we're going to be looking at some classic albums. We're kind of going to give you a bit of a breakdown into the background of the album, like when it came out, what the landscape of music was like at the time. And then we'll go into the album properly, give our opinions of it, maybe talk about the legacy that it um, left afterwards. And to kick off our series, we are starting with The Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest. Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you can find the abstract, listening to hip hop. My pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, well, daddy, don't you know that things go in cycles? Way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael. It's all expected. Things are for the looking. If you got the money, Quest is for the booking. Come on, everybody, let's get with the fly mode. Still got room on the truckload of black gold. Listen to the rhyme to get a mental picture of this black man, the black woman picture. Why do I see that? Cause I gotta speak the truth, man. Doing what we feel for the music is the proof. And planet on the ground, the act is so together. Gonna fight strong, you need leverage to sever. Wow, what an album. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Low Entry Theory by a Tribe Called Quest came out in 1991. Mm-hmm. It's their second album. Um, Tribe are a group made up of Q-Tip, uh, Fife Dog, Ali Shaheed Mohammed, and sometimes Jerobi. Um, he left the group during the recording of this album um, to become a chef. So I hope that he's enjoying his food. Um, but he's always just kind of around anyway. Apparently he had verses on this album that then got taken off. Um, but there's no ill will. Like He's always just there and in the most recent touring that they did, he was part of the group. Mm. But I just think he's not really part of the group because he doesn't like he. He's part of the group, but he doesn't actually have any contribution. Yeah. So it's a bit of a an iffy area. Yeah. But yeah, legendary legendary hip hop group. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So look, uh, Tribal Quest were kind of in an era uh, where hip hop started becoming more. I don't want to say it started becoming more positive because obviously there were positive like songs and messages and whatever, but it became like you had people kind of like Native Tongues and De La Soul and Brand Nubians who were all trying to be basically the flyest guys, yeah, and the most stylish and um, trying to kind of display positive behaviors through their music in opposition to negative media portrayals. Yeah, well, Native Tongues is actually like a collection of them all. So mm-hmm. Native Tongues is like Tribe, Dela, Brand Nubians, um, Queen Latifah, like quite a few different people. Jungle Some, Brothers as well. Jungle Brothers is the other main one. Ironic that I forgot them because people say that they've tried to be erased from <laughs> hip-hop history. <laughs> um, but they shouldn't be erased. Big up Jungle no. Brothers sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they were just kind of a group coming together um, to kind of promote black positivity um, 
and just kind of good vibes. Sometimes referred to as black hippies, a um, mm-hmm. bit like Kendrick Lamar's group, Black Hippie, um, who is not really a hippie, but <laughs> <laughs> but they're like kind of an opposition to media portrayals of black people or like the kind of more aggressive portrayals that you're seeing in hip hop at the time through NWA, through Public Enemy, who are trying, to, who have politicized rap, but in a very different way to some of the politicized mm. rap here. And a lot of this just isn't politicized. I think it's kind of trying to say we don't have to just talk about our struggle all the time. We can mm. just talk about having a nice time, like dressing how we want to. We don't have to be militant all the time. You get that a lot with Daylight. You get that with the first album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Path of Rhythm. It's a long and lengthy name. Um, <laughs> and with songs like Benita Applebaum on there, where it's just like nice party vibes. Yeah trying to create kind of an opposition to well not even an opposition but just an alternative view Mm. that's kind of from the mass being presented one of the interesting things about when this album came out as well was it came out in 1991 and right at the end of 1991 there was a big copyright lawsuit against biz over his use of sampling Mm -hmm. and before then hip-hop was like entirely sampling like we've done an episode on this but essentially hip-hop started from djs playing the drum breaks in disco tunes and then mc started rhyming over it and then that's how hip-hop was born so it was like Mm -hmm. all the foundation of hip-hop was in the sample so then in 1991 then all the people that were getting sampled were thinking have I got a claim to be made about my music being made or my music being used in a way that I didn't consent to? Mm-hmm. So Low End Theory is one of the last albums where they really didn't have to worry about sampling law or copyright law or anything like that. Um, so you can kind of tell from this album to the next album like the difference in how they use sampling. And so it's just kind of a interesting like moment in time this album Low End Theory because afterwards kind of the way that hip hop was made was quite drastically changed. Yeah, there's like a lot of a lot of intellectual property debates that could be had over this album. I mean there's a beat the beat for We Got the Jazz was originally completely made by Pete Rock and he showed it to Q-Tip who apparently just listened to the whole thing and then remade it himself and then like almost exactly um, but then still shouted out Pete Rock on the end and he's like oh thanks for the beat and then there's also like just very high profile people being sampled here like the drums on scenario i think are from Jimi hendrix Mm. like a Jimi hendrix experience song obviously not Jimi himself um and there's just like lots of high profile jazz sampling throughout the album but then there's also um jazz instrumentation um coming in through live performance Mm. with um i think ron carter is all over this album so that's why there's a lot of well that's in part why there's a lot of bass heavy songs on this album which is something that Q-Tip was apparently very very pro yeah and I mean it's not to say that like uh, they were just kind of stealing other people's music and using it for themselves like they were really influenced by how 
jazz musicians could get kind of emotion out of the music that they played and they mm-hmm. were trying to emulate that same emotion in their music um mm. so it's more like a inspiration thing rather than a death thing and also i think to consider what we said before about kind of afrocentric uh afrocentrism and promoting black positivity to use uh, a lot of jazz influence is kind of building up on the history of black performance mm. um there's a lot of writing and theory about how jazz was kind of the only expression that black people had um because it couldn't really be censored you can't be like oh that's too improvisational <laughs> but like it's kind of building on that um as an inspiration yeah particularly you get that in the i think one of the very first lines of the album is like my dad always said it reminded me of bebop mm, yeah yeah which is kind of just referencing back to that as a expressive form of music so the concept why is it called the low end theory aaron well, Jules, there's kind of two parts to that. I'll do the first one, and then please take away, because this actually works quite well with how we are, generally. Yeah, that's actually really true. Um, and what I mean by that is, Jules always likes production, and I always like the message and <laughs> the lyrics. Well, I say always, that was a bit of a generalisation, but you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever they describe this album, they kind of talk about the two meanings of the low-end theory, one of which being... Um, the placement of black people in society uh, they always say they're at the bottom of the totem pole and that's always quite an interesting comparison for me because kind of the totem pole has these roots in American history um, obviously being Native American kind of sculptures and statues where it's made up of various different um, heads and figures the definition of a totem pole Um, showcases a nation's families or individual's history and displays their right to a certain territory and that kind of is associated to songs and dances and other aspects of their culture and it's really interesting to consider that in the landscape of music that they've uh, related it to because it's like a society built upon black people with them at the bottom and everything above it and that obviously has lots of links back to slavery and just all sorts Mm. of uh, American history entangled into that mm-hmm. the other low-end theory yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh in terms of like audio signal then uh sound is basically measured in hertz and the lower the hertz the more bassy it will sound and the higher the hertz then the higher the pitch kind of it's about how many cycles of the sound wave go around in a second. It's very boring, but <laughs> um, the low end, mm-hmm. where the lower number, like where the lower amount of cycles in a second are, mm-hmm. is where the bassier sounds are. So calling this the low end theory is basically saying like we're looking for the bassier sounds and what they were really looking for is songs that would work well in a Jeep sound system mm-hmm. um, that they could blast in their car while driving through the streets. Yeah, they wanted all the cars to be shaken to their songs. Also, when I said definition of totem pole, I actually meant the symbolism behind the totem pole. Yeah, and that is like such a kind of status symbol to have your, your songs mm. blaring through the streets. Like that was 
a signifier that you were blowing up, especially in that kind of age when people were um, getting success through exchanging tapes. If they weren't getting radio play, that was how you could see that you were blowing up because you either played at the parties or you were played in people's cars. Um, but the low end kind of bassiness, like we mentioned before, with the jazz influence, is all over this album. Um, yeah. It's kind of difficult to assign roles to each person here because Ali Shaheed Mohammed is a producer. But in theory, Q-Tip also did a lot of the production. Like he's well known for how obsessive he was over his production. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of unclear exactly Ali's role. Um, Fife is obviously the rapper. Q-Tip and Fife are the main rappers. Before this album, obviously on the debut album, Fife had a slightly less significant role. He was still a rapper, but he, d- he didn't have his same presence and energy that he now is known for after this album. Um, and that, in part, is due to his medical complications with diabetes. So he's like a type 1 diabetic, which did eventually... Complications due to that did eventually kill him. Um, and before the album is when he actually told Q-Tip that he had diabetes. And bearing in mind, they've all been friends growing up their whole lives. So mm. the fact that he didn't, he'd been hiding that from him was like him trying to kind of deny his diabetes before that and there was a discussion of like okay um i'm a diabetic it's severely going to limit us if i'm in this group because i need to constantly keep track of my um bloods and make sure i don't have hypos or hypers i can't remember um and so should i just leave the group and there was a long discussion and it kind of decided no you should kind of really try and showcase yourself make the most out of your life do something with it um and that's why this album is seen as like the birth of Fife really and Mm. the moment that a lot of people point to is bugging out where he comes out in like such a it's he comes out with so much character straight away like he starts off the song I don't think he's on excursion so it is his first point on the album Mm. and it like so clearly brings this energy that contrasts well with Q-Tip And I thought it kind of represents this kind of dynamic that you see quite a lot in hip-hop now, and probably before that, where you've got one person who's supposed to be like the everyman kind of fun, direct lyricist, and then Mm. one who's more... I mean, Q-Tip refers to himself as the abstract, so he's like the more artistic, Mm. experimentational one. And you could compare that to like Outkast... Or even um, Earth Gang as well. You can see that kind of blueprint being set there, where one of them is just kind of... I mean, they're both very um, experimentational in what they're doing, but one is supposed to be like, this is the everyman, and the other one is a bit more on a mm. different level trying to do something different. Yeah, bugging out when he comes in with... Microphone check, one, two, what is this? The five foot assassin with the roughneck business. I float like gravity, never had a cavity. Got more rhymes than the one that's got family. No need to sweat our senior to gain some type of fame. No shame in my game, because I always be the same. Styles upon styles upon styles is what I have. You want to just decipher, but you still don't know the half. It's like such a sick way to enter the song. Mm. Um, I know you said it's one of your favorite songs. You're not sure which one is definitely your favorite, but that's definitely yeah one of the best songs on the album, I think. Yeah, and it's like just, I mean, the bass on that intro as well. That's part of what we've been talking about with that mm. like influential use of of jazz on there. 
Um, and it just creates such a good vibe for him to enter because he contrasts, he's quite like hype and high pitch in his delivery there, which contrasts yeah. with the kind of low tones of the bass um, to create a really exciting atmosphere. In terms of the other songs on the album, there are a lot of songs where they're kind of, in a sense, groundbreaking in the sense that, like, no one had really done them before. Mm-hmm. And here were these guys doing it. So they had uh, Infamous Date Rape, mm-hmm. which is kind of storytelling song, as you can probably guess about date rape. Mm-hmm. They had jazz, which was, like, really um, influenced by jazz. It's got, like, saxophone or mm-hmm. horn or something, like, throughout... Um, it's like really emotional. Like you can hear the emotion in the song really clearly. Mm-hmm. And they had um, Scenario, which kind of was the beginnings of Buster Rhymes and like putting him to the forefront. Um, so a lot of these songs, like at the time, were really changing. The, like because obviously so much music has come out now, like you don't really consider these things. But at the time, these were like really new things that weren't really being done before. Mm-hmm. I mean, to break each of those moments down individually, like mm-hmm. starting with Infamous Date Rape, like to have a song where, because you also kind of get this on Butter where uh, it's just Five talking about like he's trying to come across as really smooth, but he's actually just like not getting any girls and that's his mm-hmm. struggle. And Infamous Date Rape is, I mean, it's crazy to say that it's a radical stance to be anti-rape, um, <laughs> but it was pretty rare in music yeah, to be like yeah. so clearly we're not trying to have this misogynist views. We're not trying to promote any of that stuff. And we're actually trying to say, actually, let's just be positive people. Listen to the rhyme, it's a black ink fat. Percentile rate, a date rape is fat. This is all due to the reason of the season. They got the right booking, but you're in the wrong season. If you're in the wrong season, that means you got a break. Especially if a squad tries to cry out, wait. You be all vexed because you got it going on. You don't want to fight because you know that you're wrong. So instead, you rest your head on the arm of the couch. Envision in your head of a great sex bout. Worthy opponent, all you want to do is bone it. You ask, can you kick it? She says you can't stick it. This is the case. The situation is sticky. Should you try to kiss or hit towards a hickey? Not even. You can ask even if the vibe ain't right. You're leaving. And that's something that I think you, you get with other Native Tongues artists as well. But the fact that they're doing it on such a, a mainstream scale, like this is such an experimental album. It's very, it's like, it's probably the biggest, most famous jazz rap album mm. that is yeah. strictly jazz yeah. rap. I mean, like you yeah. could you could say that some of Kendrick is jazz rap, but like it's not all the way through. And yeah, to do that on such a mainstream scale was like really bringing. Uh, a clear focus to the kind of underground scenes and to the alternative movements that are just kind of being born at that time. Mm. Yeah, like you can really tell that a lot of it is in- influenced by native tongues and stuff who obviously had people like Moni Love and Queen Latifah mm-hmm. making songs like Ladies First and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really good that they kind of made this stance without uh, what I'm trying to say is like they didn't they did it off their own back basically. yeah yeah and the way that they approached it it's not a particularly in your face like aggressive yeah 
kind of song as other groups had been doing with their politicized songs it's just kind of like a, oh this is our life this is like a like a look into our life and also they're quite like they kind of take the piss the whole time they're being goofy yeah. they're just having fun and it's just like kind of critiquing the nature of society um that that's something that is accepted yeah so on show business it's kind of the same goofiness that mm-hmm. you're talking about um and it's kind of yeah i mean they were signed to a record label at this point so it's quite a risky move to do that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Tribe were one of the first few groups to be, like, very anti-label, which is ironic considering the fact that the whole label beef is what kind of broke down the native tongues in the end, and that was spearheaded in part by them. But there's kind of a sense that they feel like labels are going to rip you off, they're going to exploit you. And again, it's kind of the whole... It does, again, link back to race, because there's, like, a, a sense of exploiting the black image and a sense of exploiting your name in order for them to get money but you're not making what you want to make there um Mm. and that is referenced in a couple of songs on the album as i mentioned before scenario it's the last track on the album Mm -hmm. and uh Quite often around hip hop at that time, and you still get today with kind of like groups like Pro Era, they do it quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the last track would kind of be like a what they call a posse cut, where just everyone involved in the album, like people they knew, they'd all just get involved, spit a verse on it, kind of go around, blah, blah, blah. And uh, this song is kind of known for Buster Rhymes, because Buster Rhymes at the time, he was in Leaders of the New School, and wasn't that like i think he was kind of known but not properly known yeah he definitely didn't have the solo appeal that he had after this song and uh this was basically like his big break and they Mm. said buster you're going last Mm -hmm. and he yeah came in took his chance and there's a line in it about him like elbowing people out the way basically (laughs) insinuating you know i'm gonna fucking get to the front of this and like everyone's gonna notice me Mm. And that's what happened. What? As I combine all the juice from the mind. Heal up, wheel up, bring it back, come rewind. Powerful impact. Boom! Boom. From the cannon, the bragging. Try to reap a mind, just imagine. Both can't build, there is necessary. When digging into my library. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Eating ice to stew like the one pizza tosser. Oh, 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 all over the track, man. Oh, pardon me. Oh, as I come back. As I did, the I had to beg your pardon. When I travel through the turn, I roll with the squadron. Rawr, rawr, like a dungeon dragon. Change your little jaws with your pants are sagging. Try to step to this, I will put you in a turban. And have it smell right like some old stale urine. Chuckity Choco, the chocolate chicken. The rear cock diesel, my cheeks, they were kicking. Yo, bust it out before the bust, I bust another round. The rhythm is insane. Oh. The rounds are on town. Tipping up the sound just like a wish you go. Observe the vibe and check out the scenario. Yo. Yeah, and it was just like such an influential verse. It was, I think at the time it was the biggest song on the album. It performed the yeah, best. Yeah, for sure. It's like a very hype song. It's still extremely recognisable. You've got that like Dungeon Dragon bit that um, Nicki Minaj later references on Monster on her verse. Um, it's, again, a very clear vibe, a bit like Bugging Out, where it's like people are going to want to, like this is going to get played at the clubs. People are going to dance. Mm. This is going to hype up the crowd um posse cuts 
in general are quite interesting because there's always people that get like left out um, mm. so with this song apparently there was another version of it that had Jerobi on it the one that went and became a chef um, and it had Dela on it and it had other people I can't remember but like it had loads of people and they had these two versions of the song and they were just like because of Buster's verse yeah. It was so clear which one they had to put out. Like they yeah. had two different versions and even though one's got like people that they pro- like people probably wanted to have Jerobi on the album. They wanted that kind of movement uh, moment, sorry. But because of Buster, they couldn't deny him that moment, which is really mm. interesting actually even to consider in relation to Nicki Minaj because she had the exact same thing yeah, on Monster, yeah. where Kanye was like, "Oh, I don't know if I can even put this on because her vo- her verse is almost too good to have on." Yeah. Whereas they're like, "Fuck me, Buster's sick. Let's put it in there." <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting as well because, uh, like, as we mentioned, Q-Tip was kind of a very big perfectionist mm. on this album, and there are like loads of stories about like they'd be listening to a beat and they'd be like, "This is incredible." And he'd just be like, no, erase the whole thing. Mm. Just get rid of it all. And like, I remember Buster Rhymes, yeah, he did an interview where he, he'd be like, you can't get rid of this. Like, what, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You're getting rid of it. But mm. at the same time, he's thinking, if he's getting rid of it, he must have something better planned mm-hmm. in his head. And actually, that's interesting as well, because the equipment they were using at the time... Um, it was like pre-sampling, wasn't pre-samplers, wasn't it? Yeah, I think no, they had samplers, but they were like samplers. It was pre-sampler. <laughs> they had samplers, <laughs> but they were like um, pre-computer age, so they mm-hmm. were analog. So the amount of memory they had on them was really limited. Mm-hmm. So they would literally be like making the songs in their head without ever having heard the parts that they'd they were gonna put in later. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. I mean, that kind of all lends itself to this obsessive nature of just, like, going and doing the same stuff every day and constantly yeah. thinking about music. Like, I watched a documentary about Tribe and they were always talking about, like, whenever they were on tour, Jerobi and Fife would go and watch, like, a local sports game. Uh, Lee would be in his room playing guitar and um, Q-Tip would be out shopping at record shops all day really and then they'd go back and they'd both like Ali and Q-Tip would try and make something out of the ideas that they had together and Five would just come in with his rhymes (laughs) Uh, yeah but I mean all of this kind of says like as we were saying before it's easy to overlook it now because of how much music has come out and how hip hop has developed but at the time this was like really really new and groundbreaking stuff Mm mm-hmm Also, on a point of the perfectionism element and also their disputes with record labels, in the documentary that I can't remember the name of, Beats, Rhymes and Life, The Travel, there's a point where they're talking to one of the label executives, I think from Jive, who did put out the album. Um, And they said, if you left Q-Tip to his own devices, like the album wouldn't have come out. We had to just go over to him and be like, okay, everything you've got is really good. We're taking this album and we're putting it out. Because otherwise he would have kept kind of tinkering with it, deleting stuff, putting more things in, and it just never would have actually happened. 
they were like, you wouldn't have had an album for another five years if we hadn't gone and just said, this is it now. <laughs> it sounds like um, Control by SZA, where she was taking so long with doing it and making so many changes. But I think TDE essentially stole it. Like, obviously they owned it kind of because it's like coming out under their record label and they funded it. But mm. they basically just got the hard drive and said, whatever's on this right now is what we're putting out. Leakers. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it sounds quite similar to that. Mm, yeah, and that definitely sounds exactly the same. But they, yeah. they literally just said he, there wasn't any stopping this man because he was obsessive. And I think like because he's just constantly consuming music, he's gonna find something new yeah, each day. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'll make this instead. And that is um, kind of contributed his obsessive nature to some of the issues within the group because they did eventually then disband and then mm. came back together um, for a tour in 2008, which apparently was to fund, help fund Fife's medical bills, which says a lot about the state of yeah. America. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. That is absolutely insane. Mm. But then they did a, again come back together and had like a positive ending just before he died. Because he is on the last yeah. album, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And weirdly as well, I actually saw... A Tribe Called Quest last ever UK show, which mm. was uh, at Bestival in 2017. And at the time, like, I obviously knew a few tracks, mm. but they were always one of those groups where, like, I knew I should have been listening to them, but I never really got round to them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I was kind of in the crowd thinking, like, this is obviously amazing, but there would be other people who would have honestly killed to be here. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, yeah, this is cool. And now when I look back at it, I kind of think, like, that was actually crazy that I got to see that. Obviously, it was after Five Dog had died. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, just seeing Q-Tip on stage and, like, kind of the set that they did. Main stage as well. I think it was, like, an hour and a half. Like, it was just mm. a, real, a real privilege to see. Yeah, they were supposed to perform at a festival I was going to and then they cancelled because Q-Tip, like, broke his leg or something like that. <laughs> which is well annoying. And they said, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll do something for you. Like, we've we'll, we'll got your back, and then where you at? Didn't happen. Yeah, three years later, <laughs> four years later. And But, like, what I was going to say is if Tribe are a group for you where they've been exactly that, where, like, you know that they're legends and you know a few songs, but you haven't properly listened to them, I think this yeah. is a great album to give, a go, uh, give them a go, like, actually mm. enjoy it, because... It doesn't have, like, as much as I've said, oh, these are concepts for the album. It's not like an album where there's an overarching theme and it's, like, really dense and difficult to get into. It's mm. really easy listening. Um, there, Some of the songs, obviously, there's highs and lows throughout, and they're not all, like, perfect, but you will enjoy most of the album, probably. Yeah. It's just a very likeable um, listening experience. And I would say one of the most important things for me in how good an album is 45 minutes long <laughs> honestly so perfect it's like 14 tracks 45 minutes long that's 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 ideal Spotify says 48 minutes uh, potato potato is what I would say to that <laughs> fair so yeah obviously usually we finish with recommendations but this time I mean, this album is the recommendation. We'd recommend you to go listen to it if you haven't already. And if you have already listened to it, revisit it. But, yeah, give uh, it another chance. So instead of doing that, we're just going to kind of chat about a couple songs in a bit more detail that we really love from this album. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite song on this album is Check the Rhyme. Back in the days on the boulevard, I landed. We used to kick routines and the presence was fitting. It was I, the abstract. And me, the five-footer. I kicks the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Yo, Fife, you remember that routine? That we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean? Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen. I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. But then grab the microphone and let your words rip. I can't really exactly explain why I love it so much, but it comes in with like this uh, horn playing, like, is it a saxophone or a trumpet or? I don't know, but it's like instantly recognizable. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of like goes on your, th- it's like kind of jazzy. And then when the verses come in, the horn comes out and it becomes like this super smooth like uh laid back beat of just fife and q-tip going back and forth a lot um and their lyrics are like so well put together Mm. so the chemistry between them is so good as well like there's a case for it to be one of the best hip-hop songs yeah i'd honestly i'd honestly say top five or top ten hip-hop songs ever made yeah i would agree with that for me, the horn gets a tiny bit too much. <laughs> like that—that's what limits it from being like top three. <laughs> yeah. But it is such a sick song, like so yeah. so good, um, and it's just like a, a key moment in an album full of lots of good moments. Yeah. Um, I think "Bugging Out" for me might be my favorite, um, in part just because I love the way Five comes in on that song and that just it don't the energy doesn't really stop from there and he's also got that line where he's like um being on the train with no dough sucks and you're like yeah it does <laughs> like, <laughs> just the way that he said it you're like yeah this is just like an everyman like do you, do you know what i mean like he's so yeah. just direct and like it's not something that's difficult to understand that but like the yeah. way that he says it is just like yeah well i think as well because this album kind of came out before g-funk and before like rap became really uh about luxurious items and Mm. commodities and things like that so lines like that were like just i don't know everyday living like this is this is what i was thinking at that moment uh it's a lot more accessible in that sense so much more relatable than like the braggadocious rhymes that kind of follow in the not too distant future from this like next few Mm. years after um other high points like verses from the abstract is really good i mean obviously the whole album is good um we got the jazz we kind of or jazz we got yeah. is something that we've kind of touched on as well another really exciting song on there but obviously go listen to the whole album yeah but but for t- for some key moments i'd say um definitely check the rhymes definitely bugging out and scenario I would say those are like the most uh, remembered parts of the album. Yeah, probably that is where the like the most influential parts of the album, and that is kind of the legacy of the album could be summed up in those three songs. Mm -hmm. Right, I think that probably is the end of the episode. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed the new format. Uh, Well, a new format. (laughs) (laughs) Let us know if there's any other classic albums you'd like us to review. Obviously. We're going to do them anyway. But if you've got any <laughs> suggestions for us, <laughs> then yeah. do let us know. Yeah. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Good rest of your week. 
good rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I hope to see you again before the end, before the end of your life. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See you later. Bye. Peace out.